Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to our newest season of Humane Podcast in 2021. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and this is Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to our show. Welcome back to the Humane Podcast. Today, I have a return guest speaker who joined us last year in 2019 when the world was very much work from office. But now, as we are fast-tracking throughout 2020, as we reimagine the world and we reimagine education and we reimagine work, we're looking at the work from anywhere world. And so our guest today is Alberto Todeschini from UC Berkeley and the MIDS program. He's a course lead in artificial intelligence. We spoke a lot about data and AI last year, but there's so many new topics on our mind this year as we're again re-emerging from COVID-19. So Alberto, thanks for joining us and rejoining us on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, it's always a pleasure. We we speak a lot offline about where we're seeing the world moving. And one of the big trends that we're seeing as we reemerge is governments partnering with private organizations, basically public-private partnerships. And it's around everything from education, society, and the world. But one of the big areas you've been putting a lot of attention and energy towards is the future of environment. Uh, what are some things that you're starting to see? One thing that I've noticed recently is that there's a probable 
large amount of money flowing from uh, governments around the world into stimulus, right? So to get us back on track after COVID. So the example from the European Union, for instance, is 826 billion US dollars, of which a quarter is earmarked for environmental and sustainability and social activities. So this is very interesting because in the last few years, a lot of this is about the environment, about energy, and about agriculture have really been penetrated by data science. So we can see some evidence, for instance, from new emerging technologies with satellite images. Of course, they've been around for a while, but the the resolution, for instance, you know, spatial resolution has improved massively. Temporal resolution has improved massively. And our techniques of analysis also have improved massively. So I'm pretty optimistic, actually, coming out of this uh, big, dark cloud. First half of 2020, there will be some good news. Yeah, and I mean, it's we've been looking at many years as society at these ESGs or these, you know, environmental and economic society and sustainable goals, not only from the UN, but just where is the future? And I think one thing that we've seen a lot, it's amazing to see that so much money's been set aside, right, to to look at the future, because what we've seen as we reemerge from COVID is that there were some early promising signs of how pollution can taper off, especially when we reduce some of these, uh, let's call them the bad actors of big pollution, like having cars in our city and having factories running. And, you know, we always knew there was pollution, but how much it was, I don't think many people were aware till they could start breathing again. I mean, you and I were talking offline, some of these cities, they're beginning to have some serious conversations about the change of cities. Yeah, this is one of the wonderful things, actually, that it's uh, emerging in the middle of all the gloom. So on the energy side, newer energy technologies, or you know, they've been around for a while, but they've really become mainstream recently, such as uh, wind and solar, they are intrinsically data-driven, right? So you need to squeeze every last percent of energy out of this massively capital-intensive works and there's a lot of uh, machine learning that goes into that right and regarding cities it was really inspiring to see how many people started walking again you know with Mm. social distance and uh, taking the bicycle instead of public transport for instance and we've seen a number of cities proposing new measures to for instance uh, pedestrian and uh, cycle friendly zones in the city center including uh, paris including Milan, for instance. And as you said, people are just enjoying the the clean skies and the quiet. So this is wonderful because it's also a way to produce massive amounts of data, right? So we can expect now there will be years and years spent by thousands of PhDs, both of research on the data that we've generated in the first uh, half, first quarter, especially of 2020, right? Uh, Atmospheric data, social data, employment data, and then, you know, with a longer-term uh, health data, for instance, right? So that's a great opportunity, and I think for many of us who increasingly do want to make a positive impact. Yeah, I mean, when we look at these pollution levels of big cities, I can speak to New York City where I'm based, and there were statistics that 
in the first few weeks as we move through COVID, somewhere for upwards of 25% particle reduction is what we saw in the air. And that is incredible, not just for you and I to breathe and, and to live and walk in a walkable city, but to think there's been statistics in the past few years that have clearly shown links that the more pollution you breathe, the lower the IQ or the lower functioning of the brain. So, I mean, less pollution means not just a healthier earth, but also healthier human beings. And I think there's going to be, sounds like a lot of new startups, a lot of new initiatives emerging in this space post-COVID. Yeah, that's a great thought. That's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So we've seen companies born and then thriving after 2008. So period of huge crisis. And then you see companies like Uber and Airbnb they came around and then eventually thrived. You know, there was it was a time with um, a lot of financial hardship and a lot of people needed some extra cash and they could make that extra cash by driving around or by renting the spare room, right? Now, with COVID, we've been forced essentially to experiment. And I think we will see more experimentation around uh, livable cities, for instance. And it will be, again, as you said earlier, private and public. We will see maybe new experimentations around uh, transportation. Certainly, there's a lot of appetite for uh, resilience, for community. Uh, resilience maybe at the city level, but also at the regional level and at the national level. And again, all these changes will be hopefully based on data. There's a lot of interest in uh, logistics, again. So why is it that we cannot have months after we needed them. We can still have reliable disinfectants or, or things like that, right? So, and once again, it's logistics is a big optimization problem. It's a big uh, problem about collecting data and figuring out optimization. So at the end of the day, it's math, right? Uh, so this is another area of great opportunity that I see. Yeah, and I mean, the logistics, I can just recall during the COVID times how I had to wait for some Amazon packages to take almost 30 days to arrive because they were non-essential items. And that shows how uh, congested the logistical system became with supply chains. So absolutely, I think there's going to be some emerging startups that are saying, really, do we need to go through so many pathways to get to our end consumer? Or can we go a quicker process there. And perhaps that quicker process can also reduce the carbon footprint, right? So perhaps we're not moving through as many trucks or airplanes, or maybe even some of those vehicles are going to be more environmentally friendly. We've started seeing, you know, everywhere from Berkeley to New York City, these little self-driving mini vehicles that can bring you, you know, your sandwich to, you know, take you at local buildings. But there's even been talk of, you know, electric air taxis and all these ideas, some of them more futuristic, but a lot of it around clean energy. Yeah, this is something I'm really passionate about. So we've seen, you know, with the shock of COVID and the shock of um, the price of oil and recent bonds, we've seen a lot of oil and gas companies and coal companies going bust. And we've seen the investment moving elsewhere to renewable, which are certainly more future-proof. So one of the things that I saw, it's been floating around for a few years, but this will probably make it more visible and more directly relatable to a lot of people is the idea of uh, distributed warehouses. So it may not work in, in uh, Manhattan or uh, downtown 
uh, Milan, for instance, but it could work in suburban other places. So the idea is very simple. Imagine you have a shed and you have some objects in there and they're guaranteed by for a reputation system, which is the same that works pretty well for Uber or Airbnb, Lyft and the other ones. And you have a few essential items. So instead of having big warehouses out there, you can have this, uh, the self-driving cars are coming sooner or later, but in any case, uh, drones are coming and the little robots with the wheelies that we we see around Berkeley and other places are coming, right? So imagine you have this large distributed amount of uh, important items, your toothpaste and uh, toilet paper and whatnot, stashed in gardens around suburbia and places like that. So this was floating around a few years ago, but I think it's uh, suddenly much more interesting than when everything was running smoothly. And I do fully expect things to start running smoothly again soon. But, you know, if you talk to the epidemiologists, they'll say, well, there will be another one, as a matter of fact. And it could be a lot deadlier. So it would be nice to have this distributed way of, of storing large amounts of essential items, maybe not the perishable ones, in gardens and sheds and little boxes around uh, the, the countryside, but also around uh, suburbia. Uh, maybe not downtown Manhattan. It's a little unwieldy, but everywhere else. It's so interesting, like thinking about distributed as the new normal. You know, traditionally, we think about everything must be in person, must be synchronous in this moment. And we've seen how society is moving more to not only remote, but potentially even as you're calling it, this work from anywhere, which is more distributed. And in the supply chain space, that is similar to cloud systems, right? In cloud systems, we think about, you know, oh, you have these big data centers, but then there's edge locations. Location so you can get the parcels quicker. And it helps, especially in areas that are less dense. I think what's similar that we've definitely seen is some of these like locker-based systems, like these Amazon parcel lockers or UPS lockers, where you can get those those items. And I could see multi-use there, right? Maybe some of them does have those essential items that you need to get when you can't get to a store and they're available, multi-use. And This makes me think a lot, uh, what we're talking about here about the future of cities. You know, we've been thinking about future of smart cities for years. And of course, in 2020, at the start, CES was talking about how 5G is going mainstream. And we're now seeing that slowly but surely, right? The Samsung Galaxy S12 uh, Ultra is coming on the market. We have the iPhone 12 coming on the market. These are 5G-ready devices with blistering speeds, and they're definitely baked with AI applications all around. What are you seeing around these these smart cities? Like where we're thinking of Milan, whether we're thinking of Berkeley, whether we're thinking of Manhattan. See, another trend that um, I heard several years ago, and I thought it was, some people tried it, but it never particularly worked, but it could work now with the technology you just mentioned, 5G and this distributed system and the ability to communicate uh, incredibly quickly and also to do technically speaking, inference on the edge. So you're doing you're doing AI with your phone instead of moving data around as much as possible. One interesting thing that I heard again after a few years of not hearing it would be to figure out, a, um, so imagine a startup. There were a couple, but I don't think they ever went anywhere. And uh, let's say that you own a hammer. If you lend a hammer to your neighbor, it's not like it's going to wear out just because the neighbor is going to nail uh, 15 nails, right? And maybe you use your hammer a total of uh, half an hour every quarter, and the rest, you have a hammer there, right? So so imagine that there's um, 
again, on the topic of the distributed and also resilient infrastructure or virtual infrastructure. Imagine that you know, because of this app, that your neighbor has a hammer and the neighbor knows that you have, uh, I don't know, the one screwdriver that you need. Well, wouldn't it be great if we could figure out a way that I can just borrow that hammer that I only use once a year or once a quarter or a few minutes even that? So this is different from what I mentioned earlier where it could be about selling things. For instance, there's a, there's a small box in your garden that has some toilet paper, some disinfectant, or things like that that can be picked up when you want. That's more about selling stuff. This is more about communities sharing some of the things they're willing to share, such as tools, especially the ones that are not going to expire, right? A hammer, a saw. And naturally, you need, you need some pretty robust technology to make that useful. People don't want to write up a list of tools that they have. However, if I can just take a, a picture of a few things that I have and my phone knows, yes, this is that kind of hammer, this is that kind of uh, saw, this is that kind of uh, power drill, without me having to punch in everything, then I think that could be useful. We actually had a similar project with some of my students where the idea was you have a, you have a fridge and you have some ingredients and you do want to cook, but you don't know what to do with what you have in the fridge or maybe you just miss one of the things. Now, sure, you can keep a database, a running database where you input everything that is in your fridge. I have one garlic. I have an old onion. I have some expired tomato paste, right? Alternatively, it's difficult now, but yeah, we'll, we'll get there eventually soon enough. You just take a couple of pictures and we tell you, we computer vision of what's in your fridge, and then we tell you, you can cook this and you can substitute this ingredient with that ingredient. So it's like, yeah, let me open the fridge. What can I have reasonably healthy today? But we tell you, why do you have to keep all this mental accounting of what you have in the fridge, right? You know, it's so incredible to think about the industries that are being disrupted with technology, especially on-demand economy. Speaking about, you know, both grocery and physical products, as you talk about some of these failed startups, one of them, one of my friends, Ryan Delk, led Omni in San Francisco, and they were doing that where you could put, you know, literally your hammer or your drill bits into storage and rent them from friends or, or colleagues. You know, and I think maybe the market was premature, maybe not there just yet, but I love on the grocery side, because especially during COVID, I have amped up my cooking skills. I have made a new famous dish every week, you know, whether it's like beef Wellington or some of these other really classic dishes taking it on. But sometimes I've thought, why do I need to buy all these ingredients? You know, it, it could be very expensive, especially when you want to just make one part of a meal. It's so interesting, though, to see the future of grocery, right? As we're, we're leaning into this topic, um, there's been much said about the Amazon Go stores that, that had launched and a lot of these augmented AI products like Caper, where you could have a shopping cart that you can check out from. You know, back in January 2020, which feels like a lifetime ago, but I was actually in Milan as I was finishing up New Year's, and I got to go to that futuristic AR uh, supermarket that they talked about when these MIT professors had helped design, and it's just incredible to see the technology. There's so much innovation happening in Europe. Yeah, that's true. So the market in Europe is pretty fragmented, partially a lot has to do with language, right? So we are pretty much most European country, we speak uh, reasonable English, but that's, not, that's absolutely not true for the, for the entire population. So there's, there's an issue with scaling, certainly, but there are a lot of uh, regionally successful startups 
what is less developed certainly is the, the, the world leading companies that you see coming up again and again and again and again and again in Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley and thereabouts. So having grown up with one foot in a city in the Alps and one foot in a village of 200 people in the Alps, it's interesting to see both of them. And having lived then in places like uh, Tokyo for two years and London for six years and then and now the San Francisco Bay Area, Berkeley, for about six years, it's very interesting to see the cultural differences. One thing that I enjoyed about the village is that if you need something, you need flour because you were going to bake, but guess what? You don't have enough of the right flour or you need that hammer that we talked about. You know exactly what to get it, right? It's easy in a village with 200 people. You go either, you know, either you ask your cousin or you ask your aunt <laughs> or someone. You always know, oh, if you need the hammer, you go to that person. So that's not been replicated successfully as far as I know and as you mentioned so far with technology. Maybe because some of the attempts, I'm not sure about your friend's attempts, but they were some of the things that I saw, they tried to solve the problem at, at the wrong scale. And one of the things that maybe has changed with COVID is the sense of locality. We'll see how much goes back to normal eventually. I know it sounds unthinkable to many of us to think that uh, many things will go back to normal, but I do think that a, a lot of our lives we will go back to normal. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, you know, one of the big things I've heard about in tech from some of the leading VCs, especially like Paul Graham, is to do things that don't scale, right? If you can build it at a local level, then you can scale it, but you should start small to get big. And, you know, this reminds me as you're sharing these stories, Alberto on groceries, it's like, you know, when you think about, do you need the right flour? All-purpose flour is not bread flour. It's definitely not the right flour. And this is a distinction that's important to make, similar to the distinction when we look at what occurred with COVID. I mean, are data scientists, epidemiologists, do we know everything about healthcare? This may not be true. We may not be able to translate data to scale in healthcare. And I know as we've been flattening the curve, and now it seems that as we've re-emerged and, and reopened the economy, that um, generally we're doing pretty well at keeping with the right PPE and, and keeping people healthy, and that's all to be determined over time. But, I mean, data scientists and their predictions, I don't think it went that well. I mean, some people were predicting millions of deaths in the United States, and we'll have to see how how that ages on this episode, but... Um, what do you think about that with data scientists, epidemiologists, and specialists in the field? That's a great, great question. That's an important question. I think I want to start with one thing. Yes, we butchered a lot of the predictions. Absolutely. We butchered them big time. However, I would still hope that people follow the experts next time. So the worst takeaway is to say, see, the epidemiologists didn't know. Well, we see all those mistakes. We were, we were promised millions of deaths, and we on, we only had you know a hundred uh, or maybe two hundred thousand. We'll see in the US uh, how many we end up having. Right, we're already uh, above a hundred thousand. So I think I do hope that people will trust the epidemiologists next time because it could be uh, ten times more deadly easily. We know something else will will come, and the chances are sooner or later it will be far far deadlier. So, but with that out of the way, absolutely. I think there's so many problems, so many problems. One, one problem was in simply uh, reporting. So we don't even have the same definition. What is a death by COVID? Or is it a death with COVID? 
right? So if you see how different, even in the same country, different municipalities and different counties are reporting deaths, it's just very complex or very complicated. And then we saw analysis done by some cowboys, say on, on LinkedIn or whatnot, at the speed of light immediately in February or whatnot, and they completely butchered it. And then they kept butchering it. So there's a there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done post-mortem in the real meaning of the term to understand, okay, what went wrong with the data collection so that next time we can collect the data better? What went wrong with communication between health authorities and, and political authorities and and the general population, right? So there's, I think there's going to be a lot of soul searching that we need to do as data scientists. Uh, suddenly, rushing, everyone wanted to rush to find uh, solutions and to find advice and everything, and a, a lot of it was pretty poor quality. No rush going forward. I think it will take a bunch of years of research to figure out exactly. I mean, think about it. In theory, like you, you would have to go to every single hospital, say, in the country, let's say the U.S., and find out, so what was his definition of death by COVID or with COVID exactly? So that person was, what, 50%, 40% COVID and 60% uh, pneumonia? Or was it uh, 55% COVID and then 20% pneumonia and uh, whatever else, something else, right? We have no clue. You know, maybe, maybe individual directors or individual clinics will know, hopefully, what they are doing. But we have no idea what's happening on a large scale. And without that clarity... There's no way that we can do any any uh, robust and interesting data science. We can have opinions, right? The opinions are cheap and everyone likes to have opinions. That certainty that we are doing a good job, that's going to take years and years of digging and studying. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. 
Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Yeah, we're definitely going to need to see more collaborations between science, publications, and researchers. Because I think like you mentioned, Alberto, we've seen tens of thousands of research papers just on COVID-19 and coronavirus. And that is mind-boggling in two capacities. You know, one, it's fantastic to see Look at the collaborative research. We thought the world was splintering, moving to nationalization, but globalization still exists and researchers are working all across borders. But then who are all these researchers? How many of them are epidemiologists, these business experts, versus the data scientists who may be data experts? So I think we definitely always need to bridge the gap between business domain and technical domain. And that'll help us, I think, make better research. We were chatting offline for the show as well that, you know, you've started to see the movement with tech conferences to go virtual. And some of these leading tech conferences have fantastic new things, especially with going back to our topic on uh, carbon emissions and, and forestry and satellites. I mean, there is such an incredible wealth of knowledge that people are interested in now because we got to like dig away from cities for a moment of time? What are some of those things you've been seeing with satellites and images? So I have a couple of projects actually running now. One was pretty simple. It is pretty simple. So you have this satellite imagery about cultivated areas. So cultivated areas are very interesting because they consume, agriculture consume the majority of uh, fresh water. And about half, depending on which paper you're reading, it could be about half, 52% of uh, agriculture currently is not sustainable, purely from the point of view of water. We're not talking about deforestation. We're not talking about runoff of chemicals into the ocean, purely just the, just the water, right? So if you read news, look at what's happening to water in, in Australia, uh, the Midwest here in the States, so the Central Valley, it, they're, they're all drying. Okay, so the better we understand any any part of, of this massive ecosystem that includes rain-fed and includes uh, irrigated land can push the needle to a more, essentially, a more sustainable and intelligent use of water. One thing that I'm working on that I think is very interesting is to find this sweet spot, the optimal spot between maximum yield and sustainability, still with water and still with agriculture, and we're using satellites for that. So basically, the idea is simple. Let's say there's a as a curve, and maybe it's a normal curve, the Gaussian. And let's say that if you're on one side, you're not watering enough, you're leaving crop on the table, in the soil. And that is a problem because of the quickly increasing world population. And yes, there are more calories around than we need them, but there's a lot of food that is not particularly nutritious, as you know. But if you, if you push the other way, you're using too much water, and then you risk ending up with water-stranded assets. Essentially, places of land that don't have enough water to be cultivated uh, optimally. Another thing that is very interesting is that water is also used for electricity and generation. Everyone knows about hydroelectric electricity generation, but thermal electricity produced by means of coal is actually very water intensive just because you, you need a lot of water to cool the heat that is generated, right? And also carbon capture, some of the main carbon capture technology are, technologies are very water intensive. And I think as we increase both the data collection as well as the predictions, which are two of the main things that we can do with the machine learning, right? 
we can just use water better, essentially. It's as simple as that. Sustainably, yes, but also with increasing yields. And one of the things that I noticed is that some people just don't want to know about sustainability. They want maximum yield today, but also in five years, anything years. They will react very well if you put it like that. Mm. If you say, oh, yeah, sustainability, oh, 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 what do you mean? No, yes, what we're talking about is finding the sweet spot, the optimal spot with optimal use of water for businesses, for profit, and also while respecting the balance and the natural resources out there. You know, this maximum yield conversation, I think, leads into a very interesting bet that we'll be talking about as we get further into the show. So everyone definitely stay tuned about thinking about tech trends. But, you know, as you're sharing in five years versus today, yield is a little bit more challenging to predict. And I think as we're moving into this internet first society or digital first society that we've seen as a result of COVID, one thing is data's gotten a lot more spiky. It got a lot more volatile. And we've seen that there's been so much data collected with contact tracing apps and movement of people and trading in the finance and quant world. Where do you think data's gone? Is it getting spiky, especially with machine learning? Absolutely. I think to give an example how Zoom completely exploded in popularity, and as soon as it started going viral, this has completely dominated the market. And yes, I know some other people are still using uh, Skype and whatnot. And uh, Google Meet, yeah, sure, fine. But uh, Zoom, which I've been using for years for my online uh, purposes, has completely exploded. I'd be interested to see the actual increase in usage in the last six months. I wouldn't be surprised if it's 10x, possibly more. Now Zoom is a verb, right? Now you Zoom your grandparents. So... Clearly, that, that was only possible because it's a technology-first company, right? You cannot scale certain types of businesses equally fast in six months. You cannot start producing from 1 million cars to 10 million cars for, the, for a car company. Even Tesla cannot do that, right, in six months. It's just not going to happen. So absolutely, as we move towards collecting ever greater amounts of data, those companies that do make good use of that data. And by good, we're speaking about business-wise here specifically. It's not a judgment about privacy or, or anything. We're talking about commercial business at the moment. This is going to dominate. What's happened to Amazon in the last few months? Sure, even mighty Amazon uh, scrambled a bit with logistics because of the incredible spike of, uh, of usage as well as because of physical distancing measures of employees, right? What's happened to Netflix? A huge increase in usage, right? So these companies that are, from day one, data-driven companies are all thriving and they're becoming ever more unmatchable. I don't even know what a competitor of Amazon looks like. You know, you know you're know, you number one when you cannot even fathom someone else catching up to you. Sure, in niches, yes, but not in, in general online commerce. And, you know, even though, Walmart is doing fine, Target is doing fine, but it's just not keeping up with Amazon. Yeah, I mean, as we're looking at how the world has shifted because of COVID, 
Some of it's going to be short-term and some of it's going to be long-term and that Amazon effect is being felt everywhere. But we're looking at the changing workforce, the changing of living and the digital experience. Um, you're coining this term that we're moving into like a work from anywhere space. What do you mean by work from anywhere? What I mean is that we should not limited to think in binary terms. So a lot of the discussion is couched in binary terms. Either you work from the office, maybe nine to five, uh, Monday to Friday, or you work from home. So that's the first thing that I think uh, we need to debate. I think one of the good things actually about COVID is that it's forced us to think about flexibility. So, and I think uh, many companies are not going to go full one direction or the other, full from the office or full from home, but they're going to be a little flexible, which I think to be a, a good thing. How many people enjoy their commute, right? If you could stay home every Tuesday and every Thursday, maybe, of the work week, right, would you do that? A lot of people would do that. So that's one dimension. And the second dimension is, well, where is home, really? So if you work for one of those companies that allow you to work uh, full remote, where is home? Are you even going to have a stable home or are you just going to travel around, especially for say, people in their 20s, for instance, right? But there's also the possibility of doing, you know, yes, home is uh, Mexico for six months and then Washington State in, in the summer, something like that. So where is home? Home is anywhere. The danger is that work is everywhere, anywhere, as in uh, the possibility. My boss is not checking, but so long as I'm uh, prompt enough and in a reasonable time zone, I can do whatever you want, right? That's great. That's flexibility. But work everywhere, as in you always have that connection with work and it's difficult to check out. That's uh, the negative effect, certainly. You know, that is definitely a mental health crisis that's brewing. And there's been you know, a lot of companies out there, like we're thinking about the headspaces and comms of the world that have been helping people uh, unplug or disconnect. But I think, you know, let's get into something very controversial. We're talking about tech. We're talking about tech leaders. And there has been this dichotomy or this binary, if you will, where one company leader, executive Jack Dorsey of Twitter and Square has said, you can work from home forever. We are just going to begin removing our footprint and Twitter historically has been a company that has not worked from home versus Facebook. Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg has come out saying very publicly numerous times that, you know, look, I'll give you the opportunity if you'd like to work from home. Absolutely. Like we need to be an empathetic first company. But if you're not in our core, you know, tier one cities and you move to a tier two or tier three city, there may be some compensation changes in store. What is your take on that, Alberto? Yeah, that's very interesting being in Berkeley and just a few miles from the headquarters of both companies. And I have a lot of friends and former students who work there, right? So that's very interesting. Um, I was not too surprised to hear Twitter's decision, which was applied to Square, another company whose CEO is Jack Dorsey. So that was not too surprising. It was a little surprising in terms of... Uh, high profile, right? They're still mm. super famous companies. It's super in the media, especially Twitter, right? So 
However, if you read the news about Jack and what he's been saying over the years, that was not too surprising. It's going to be a very interesting experiment, and I'm sure we'll learn a lot. And in a way, it was not too surprising to hear from Mark either. He's been somewhat conservative in many choices. Yeah, I, I don't mean politically, obviously. I mean in terms of maybe not pushing the envelope with, with other things. So regarding costs, that's absolutely fascinating. So I'm pretty sure some people would uh, gladly get a small pay cut, or possibly a substantial pay cut, to move uh, from away from, say, San Francisco and uh, or Palo Alto or whatnot. They move somewhere more idyllic. However, one suspects there's going to be also a fair amount of resentment. So if you are hired in a place that is distinctly cheaper and you grew up there, and from day one, you know, if I'm hired remotely, I will make X percent less. But you know what? Home costs 30% or possibly 20% what it costs in, uh, in San Francisco or Manhattan. Maybe it's easier to swallow. But if you want to relocate and then have to take a pay cut, that's difficult, right? So if you're, if you're used to X and then they say, okay, how about we give you 70 or 80% X? That's difficult, right? I think the new hire is easier. It's like, oh, you know what? I'm staying out here. It's all cheaper, and I, I can walk to work, uh, which is Starbucks or whatnot, versus let me take a pay cut now. So we will see how that turns out. I think it's a little early. I think it's going to be very fascinating to see how many people accept that. To be honest, I'm not so convinced there will be this deluge of people leaving the Bay Area or other expensive areas in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, news from this week is that prices are finally starting to react negatively. I mean, rental prices in the Bay Area. So the incentive to that incentive to move may also change a uh, fair few percent points. Let's say you pay 10% rent less, right, in San Francisco. Then it's a fair bit of incentive less to move elsewhere. That's right. I mean, we saw in 2008 during the global recession that prices fell, you know, upwards of 15% from a rent perspective. And our early signals are showing that prices for renters in San Francisco are down about 10% and Menlo Park down 15%. So perhaps a similar trend is in store. And maybe that can uh, ward off some of the effects of this suburban sprawl. You know, like yourself, I'm in New York City, another big city, and I'm a uh, generally of the fan of this economic theory called aggregation economies, which is when you're co-located in, in these big urban centers where anything's possible. It just couples the effect. It's stronger. You know, one plus one is definitely more than two. It could be three or even 300, which are things I think about. So, and the challenge is that we as, you know, practicing data scientists and AI experts, you know, in the short term, we overstate a lot, right? We think self-driving cars are going to be here next year. Okay, they're, they're not here yet, right? But in the long term, I don't think AGI will be here in my lifetime. It's something people know I've said in the show. I don't think it will be. But you know what? I am not Nikola's Tesla. <laughs> we got to see where that's going to be. So with that note, I mean, thinking about Big picture, predictions, trends, call to action. What are some things you'd like to leave with our listeners today, Alberto? Let's carry on with a thought about cities. I think one of the things that could conceivably happen, I don't expect this exodus, 
but uh, some dilution potentially if you only need to go to work or if you feel like you need to go to work once or twice a week you, you'd like to meet people and see your boss and whatnot but what about living 100 miles from work you wouldn't want to commute 200 miles a day right but if you only need to do it once a week maybe you will do it that so it's it's a mild dilution though where the center is still the city so similarly maybe you just go to work on location five days a month and you live 100 miles 150 miles from work it's from SF, for instance, or from Boston, whatever. So it's some dilution, but the center remains the center. So that's a very conceivable trend, and especially as, as you said, self-driving technology improves. And sure enough, it's taking longer that even I posted famously on LinkedIn, I was so wrong a few years ago, but never mind. Uh, so as that improves, it's like, oh, you mean I can just read the news for those 120 minutes once a week, one way that I go to, to work. So, but the center is not going to change, I don't think. Maybe a little dilution, but I don't expect an exodus at all. What we should do, maybe what we can do and we should do is find ways to improve life in the city, which is what we've been saying for a while. Let's make them, let's use technology to figure out how to improve life in the city or make places where we enjoy walking, we like walking, we enjoy local restaurants, we enjoy going out, we like biking around and staying fit in the city, in livable cities. So maybe that is something we can think about and uh, work towards. Yeah, I think thinking about what you just shared, I mean, I've also heard these stories about New York City where the Hudson Valley, you know, could be a place where self-driving cars are here tomorrow so you can live 100 miles out and commute in. But we've even seen in the real world today where I know doctors who particularly live in Florida and commute once a week to a hospital in a different state depending on what work they're doing. So it definitely is possible. I think we're going to reemerge stronger. I think the economy is going to rebound. We've seen early signals from China that airline traffic less than two months after they've been fully open is already back to 80% of pre-COVID levels. We're seeing similar signals, a little bit lower, but trending up also in the hotel and the restaurant space. So, you know, if there's one thing I know that we're a resilient nation, what call to action or message would you like to share with the audience? I agree. I'm, I'm optimistic. It's been awful. It still is awful, but I'm optimistic. So what I would say is just look around, uh, look around your neighborhood and think of things that could, uh, you want to stay with us. So yes, we've been given a great opportunity to reset a lot of our habits. It was greatly challenging. So how many of us started eating better during COVID because our habits, our usual eating habits were, were, were kind of destroyed? How many of us started working out better or worse? So we were given an opportunity. We didn't ask for the opportunity, but we were given an opportunity to change a lot of things, to break a lot of habits. And so what I would say is, let's make the most of it. This is, I think, really the most important thing that we can do looking forward to cement that optimism that many of us are actually starting to have. Let's break the bad habits. Let's remember the good things. Let's start this new good habits as we can get out there more and more. Alberto Todeschini from UC Berkeley. Thank you for joining us on the Humane Podcast. Thank you. Always great having you, my friend. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. 
Did the episode measure up to your thoughts on ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education? Share your thoughts with me at humanepodcast.com forward slash contact. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review, and listen for more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.